Hello and welcome to the Swift Coders Podcast, where each week we interview an amazing Swift developer about their experience with Apple's new open source programming language. We hear their stories, learn their tips and tricks, and try to leave you feeling inspired and empowered on your Swift Coder journey. I'm your host, Garrick, and today's guest is Just Dave Singh. Just Dave is an iOS engineer on the core team at Tumblr. Welcome to the show, Just Dave. Thanks for having me, Garrick. I'm really excited. Yeah, I am too. Uh, to have a iOS engineer that works at Tumblr, that's like really cool. I mean, uh, I, I listened to uh, all of Marco Armit's uh, podcasts, and I know he was like one of the first people to work there. So I kind of feel like I'm talking to a star right now. <laughs> Yeah, he actually um, he came actually to the office a couple weeks or a couple weeks ago and gave a talk in our like engineering speaker series. Um, so it's really awesome to hear like stories from the beginning of Tumblr, um, wow. kind of like hear like you know how things started out and like how the challenges they went through in the beginning days. Wow, that's super cool. Okay, so a little bit of background on how Just Dave and I met. We've technically never met in person. We met through Twitter. Everybody, if you don't have it already, download Twitter. Get on there. Great way to meet, uh, you know, iOS developers and people that you otherwise can't meet. You know, that are all around the world. But he posted something, I can't remember how I saw it, but he posted something, maybe somebody retweeted, or maybe somebody I followed um, commented, and you posted something about, uh, what was it, it was uh, accessing a subscript. Well, why, why don't you mention what that tweet was about? Yeah, sure. So um, so for those who are not familiar, Public Ascension is basically a small side project that I run, and it's basically every, I try, I try to do it every weekday, um, although like every so often I'll miss a day. Um, but it's basically where I, I tweet out an extension that I've found really handy, like in Swift or that I found on the internet. And um, so the one specifically that Garrick is referring to was um, in, um, in in Foundation, there's a type called NS user defaults. And um, basically what it is is like a way to persist settings in an app. Um, so you can store things like Booleans, integers, um, arbitrary objects. Um, actually, sorry, only PLS types can be in NS user defaults. Um, but basically, like, um, you have to access these things through, like, functions on NS user defaults. So you can say, like, you know, fetch me a Boolean for a given key, and then you give it, like, a string key. Um, but what's cool about Swift is that you can give custom subscripts. Um, so what I was trying to do is overload NS user defaults to give it multiple subscripts um, so that you can basically, instead of having to call, like, the associated methods to get a Boolean or an integer or, like, an object for a given key, you can basically um, use a subscript operator on NS user defaults. So it's kind of treats it like an array where you'd normally subscript into an array. You could do that for defaults itself. Right, like so, my array um, open closed, you know, uh, square brackets and in the brackets, you know, zero, whatever the index is, and you can get the value for that, let's say, key, but it's actually a subscript. So, and I actually I use NS user defaults a lot. I'm sure you know iOS developers all around do, and you always have to do you know value for key or string for key or whatever for key. And and when I saw that, I was like, this is kind of cool. Let me. I didn't quite understand exactly everything that you were doing because i'd never seen this like subscript like the implementation detail of a subscript before mm -hmm. but i understood the point and i was like this is really cool but then the way i saw it was it was i think it was a retweet that someone quoted it was radek uh who's like a swift genius and actually we've mentioned him before on this podcast because i think Yuriv had some sort of twitter interaction with him and i think maybe it was a language like lost in translation but kind of like the way he said it i was like why is he kind of being so mean to this guy like just <laughs> dave like saying it's actually not a good way to do it. And, and he pointed out to his Swifty NS user defaults um, GitHub repo. And I was like, man, I kind of feel like bad. Like, I think this is cool. So let me hit up hit this guy up and say, dude, I think what you're doing is cool. Like, I, I don't know. I guess maybe I was being a little like, um, I was reading into it too much, which I do. And I actually I come from a legal background, so I like to defend people. <laughs> Anyways, so this was going on. And then you were super nice and responsive. And you like... Um, 
you, you, you know, you tweeted back and I think I said, I'd love to hear more about it. And you ended up writing a blog post and we'll link to all this. And you mentioned me by name along with, was it Joe Groff or whoever is at Apple? Who was it at yeah. Apple that you mentioned? Okay. And I'm yeah. thinking, like I showed my fiance, I'm like, look, this guy's like mentioning my name along with this, with Joe Groff. Like, how cool is that? <laughs> you know, and this was actually early on when I started reaching out to people in the community to, to start interviewing them. So anyways, the reason I mention it is just thank you so much for being so responsive. And I think it's this type of um, community that is really attractive uh, as an iOS developer and that we need to you know, encourage because, uh, you know, programmers, we can be so like, I know the answer and this is the way to do it. And it's very, it can be very um, humanless, like inhumane sometimes. Mm -hmm. But, um, one of the things I love about Apple is like it's always about the intersection between humanities and technology, and that's what interests me about doing like, doing all this, the creative and intellectual side. And even like I read some of the Swift open source um, stuff, and it can get like very like argumentative sometimes. And I know I, I just I was trying to I want to encourage that, and that's why I'm doing this podcast. That's why I have the meetup, and that's why I want to bring people like you on, so we can really create the community we want to be a part of. I don't know, does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. And given the fact that like Swift is a relatively young community, like these are the kinds of things that are really like kind of established, like it can, can like start off a great foothold for a community. Um, because obviously like aside from the language, like a really important part about like any given programming, like kind of domain is, is the community around it. Um, so that can really make or break a language if it has a bad community around it. Um, yeah, so we definitely totally. want to have Swift, Swift set up on the right foot. Yeah, and you know, Swift going open source, I think, you know, Apple's goal is to make this a programming language for everybody. And so if outsiders are coming in and they're new to programming and they kind of get turned off because, you know, maybe they're not, I don't know, they, uh, the reason why I'm, I'm doing all this is I want to make people feel like they can do it and they're welcome, you know, because that's where I'm at or I was at least. And, and uh, yeah, so we need to create this, uh, the community we want to be a part of. So thank you so much, man, for being, uh, doing what you do and being really responsive and nice. No problem at all. All right. So that was a long way of saying that's how we met. So yeah. you work at Tumblr. What do you do there exactly? Yeah. So um, basically the way that we split up iOS at Tumblr is we have basically a core team and different product teams. Um, so overall we have around like 13 uh, iOS engineers at Tumblr. Um, and like I said, they're kind of split up between core and product teams. So the way the product teams work is they're kind of like um, independent verticals. So we'll have teams like profiles, messaging, um, activity, and they'll be kind of self-contained units where they'll have like Android engineers, iOS engineers, web engineers, um, like PMs and things like that. Um, and then there'll also be the core team on the iOS side, which could kind of like the glue um, for all the product teams. So we basically implement like things that don't necessarily fall within a specific vertical. So for example, like when 3D Touch came out on iOS, um, like the core team was the one who implemented that, um, that, that, that support within the app. Um, things like Touch ID, um, I'm trying to think what other, kind of like basically any gray areas that don't fall into a specific vertical is what will fall into the responsibility of the core team. It sounds like I might want to be on a core team because my fear is if I was to work at a company like Twitter or, or Tumblr, I would get stuck with the messaging, you know, team and I would only work on messaging. Not that, you know, you couldn't do a bunch of stuff with messaging, but which obviously, you know, given all these, you know, Slack and all that, we, we know that you can do a lot of cool stuff with messaging. But what gets excite, uh, what excites me about iOS development is all these different technologies. And I want to work with all these different, you know, like if 3D Touch comes out, I want to be able to work with it. So it sounds like that's what you kind of get to do on the core team. You get to play with lots of different uh, technologies. Yeah, definitely. And it's kind of funny because like my, my last two projects actually are not even like, I, like iOS app related. <laughs> They're kind of more just like tooling around our app. Um, so if we want to get into those, like my most recent project was actually 
Um, I don't know if you're familiar, like the Swift compiler actually has some trouble sometimes. Uh, it takes a long time to compile certain expressions if you would like write them a certain way. Um, so for example, like type inference, like when you, when the compiler tries to infer a type of a given expression, so say you have um, like let A equal some array and the array is like, a, it could be like a, a bunch of strings. Like the compiler has to infer that like without a type annotation that that array is an array of strings. Um, but if you have like a really complicated array, like literal expression, um, the compiler sometimes takes forever to infer that. Um, so basically, um, when you compile your project, there's ways to pass flags um, to the Swift compiler to say, you know, hey, output some information about, you know, how long you're taking to compile certain expressions. Um, Interesting. So, yeah, so basically, like the Tumblr app right now, if you do do a clean, a clean build, it actually takes like on the upwards of like 10 minutes to compile from like from a, a clean build, yeah. So it's a huge app. Um, so basically, compile time is very important for us because you have 13 engineers. Uh, a clean build takes like 10 minutes to compile. So say you compile about 20 times a day, like that actually adds up to a significant amount of money. Um, so it's very much in our interest to like, if we find certain expressions that the compiler takes forever to compile, um, to try to like help the compiler out and like give it some hints on ter in terms of like, for example, what the type would be. Um, so what I actually wrote was like a script to go over um, our project and basically like get their like results about, you know, how the compiler is doing on certain expressions and then aggregate those and sum them up and say, you know, hey, this expression in this file on this line is taking 10 seconds to compile. Like maybe you should rewrite it in a way that makes it easier for the compiler, compiler to handle. Um, wow, yeah. that's so, so cool. Yeah, so this actually, this builds off some of the work um, that Brian Iris and Brian Michelle did. So Brian Michelle is my, engin my engineering manager at Tumblr, and uh, Brian Iris is a former engineer at Tumblr. Um, so they actually did a really great blog post that we can probably link to um, about this. And then basically I wrote a script on top of that to help like kind of aggregate and parse those results that you get from the compiler um, and kind of like make a, like a weekly report. That's our goal. Yeah, I definitely want to link to that blog post. Okay, so is this something that you can do? Like, I, you created this script, but can you do some of it in the debug console? Like, is there some like, uh, or how do how do you do you have to do it from the ter uh, terminal? How do you get that information from the compiler? Yeah, so there's uh, right now like uh, the way I had done it was like um like with like, when you when you can run the build command from Xcode uh, like like through the uh, like in terminal. Um, I think there is a way to get it within Xcode itself, um, but we can link in the blog post. Um, like for my script itself, it's actually just running a terminal command and then parsing the okay. output of that. Um, okay. But I believe, I think Brian Iris found out a way to get it to show up in Xcode itself. Okay. Um, but this is kind of like, to, the script, the intent of it is to run it in like a programmatic fashion. So basically every week we send out a report to the team saying, you know, hey, here's where the compiler is like, like bottling down like within the app um, and kind of like it's, try to fix it from there. It's interesting because one of the big features of Swift is type inference and type safety. Yeah. But it sounds like it's coming at somewhat of an unknown cost. Like this sure. is the first time I'm hearing about this. Yeah, so it's like, I mean, yeah, like type reference and type safety are, are great things, but like, yeah, like they do come up at, like with a time cost um, at compile time. Um, so it's obviously like, I'd rather pay like time costs at compile time, but like when you start to scale a large scale team, like it actually does become an issue. Um, so I think one of our functions that we had takes 10 seconds to compile. Um, so like well, when we actually like fixed it, it was like a 10th of a second to, to compile. Um, so now it's simply just adding type annotations uh, to it. Um, so it's like, it can make a huge difference in certain cases. So where is Tumblr? Is it in New York? Yeah, they're in New York. Um, we also do have a, a small office in San Francisco, um, but primary all of engineering is in New York. What's it like working there? Uh, it's a lot of fun. So the company is around 300 people. Um, wow. And uh, so that, no, obviously not all of them are engineers, but um, um, yeah, no, it's a lot of fun. So it's um, definitely like a, like a medium sized company for sure. It's not like Facebook size yet. Um, but um, yeah, it's, it's did, a lot of fun. I, I, came, did, I came from a previously smaller company. Say that again? Or I came from a, a smaller company beforehand. Uh, Imager oh, okay. is where I worked before Tumblr. Yeah. Wow. So did you work on, or are you familiar at all with the Tumblr, Apple, like tvOS app? Uh, so like I joined right after they released it. Um, so I know the developers who worked on it, but I just didn't, I didn't work on it personally though. 
That's a really cool take on a TVOS app, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they actually have it running on the TVs in the office all the time. Did you see Did you see it when the Taylor Swift thing was happening? Uh, did, I it don't think it is. Interesting. You just press play on the TVOS app, the Tumblr mm-hmm. app, and like Taylor, there was like all this Taylor Swift stuff, but also music um, mm-hmm. like being played. Because normally the, the Tumblr app just plays like GIFs or whatever. Yeah. Um, anyways, I thought it was really interesting. Awesome. So, man, <laughs> that'd be so cool to work at a place like Tumblr. Like, how many engineers did you say? iOS engineers? Uh, iOS is around 13. Wow. I, that may not be the exact number, but it's in the, it's in the teens. Or it's in the teens. Wow, that's so cool, man. Okay, so you used to work at uh, Imager. Yeah. How did that? Like, tell tell us a little bit about that. What did you do there? Yeah, sure. So, um, so basically, I graduated university in 2014, um, and I went to the school in Virginia, and then immediately after school, I went to Imager, which is in San Francisco. So basically, flip coast. And um, yeah, so I originally joined as a like an API engineer. So I worked on the API that supported like the mobile website, the Android app, and the iOS app, and pretty much also it's it was a publicly available API. So any external developers who wanted to build on top of the API could use it. Um, like some of the big consumers are Reddit. Um, so they use images or sorry, the uh, Reddit uses imager like hosted images, but like a lot of like um, different plugins and extensions in the browser use imagers API to help like enhance the experience on Reddit. Um, but yeah, so I originally worked as an API engineer there and did that for about a year. And then the last six months that I worked there, I switched over to iOS um, because pretty much what we wanted to do was build the new version of the iOS and Android app from the ground up. And um, I'd worked on the new version of the API for those apps. And as, as like generally in development goes, like APIs are usually easier to build than apps <laughs> just because there's no really front end for the APIs aside from the JSON. Um, so finished the API pretty early and then was able to help out. I really want to learn iOS. So I ended up switching over to the, the iOS team and helped them out um, because at the time they only had two engineers. So I wanted to help support them and give them, to take some bugs off their hands and then uh, ended up learning from there. So why did you want to learn iOS? Uh, yeah, pretty much because I've had an iPhone for I think since second year in university. Um, so I've pretty much always had an iOS device. I've always had like kind of an eye for appreciating really well-designed apps. Um, and like, I've, it's always been something that I've used, but I've never really knew how to program. And at the time when Swift had, it was just announced, I thought it was a really great time to learn iOS because Objective-C had always kind of like frightened me a bit um, just because like the syntax was so foreign compared to any other language like that I had previously known, like Java, Python. Um, so Swift was just like very approachable in that regard. And um, it kind of felt like greenfield territory. Um, like once, once Swift had come out, it's like, you know, everybody's a beginner again, and it's really kind of cool to jump into a language at that point because there's like no really established conventions. You guys can all debate about like style and things like that. Like there's not like ironclad rules with regard to how you approach development in Swift at that time. So it was really fun to kind of jump in and kind of help establish those. Wow. Okay. Well, I want to get more into iOS and Swift a little later, but I actually want to learn about you, how you got into all this. So yep. uh, did you, you know, when did you first start programming? Yeah, so um, so I used to be a big gamer when I was growing up. Um, so I used to play a lot of Xbox, and uh, this kind of like segues into how I got into programming. Um, so I used to actually um, do something called modding on Xboxes, which is kind of like essentially installing a, like an extra hardware chip on Xboxes to modify the behavior of the system and allow you to do certain things that you're not allowed to do. It's kind of like jailbreaking for Whoa. Xboxes. <laughs> um, so, wow. Yeah, so I used to install mod chips on my Xboxes that kind of allow you to like modify game files. Um, so I was a big uh, player of the game called Halo, um, if you're familiar with that game. Yeah. Um, so I used to modify Halo to kind of do different things, like kind of have auto-aim, like allow you to jump higher, like replace like the projectiles for certain guns to different things so you can like have power-ups and stuff like that. Um, so that kind of really got me into programming because I used to study all these forums, like, you know, how do I install the mod chip? Um, you know, how do I like load in arbitrary game files to do different things? Um, so that kind of really got me interested in programming from there. And then from there, I, like I built my own computers and kind of just like hopped into programming. And luckily, the middle school I was at offered an introductory programming course. Um, so I kind of took those and then in high school did programming as well. And um, ended up majoring in university, so I, I would say definitely gaming was like the segue that got me into programming. Um, because like, okay, so yeah. you're playing Halo, 
yeah. and you're thinking like this is cool how did you how did it occur to you that you would mod your xbox yeah so actually i used to play a lot of xbox live um so basically online multiplayer uh for halo okay. and um i used to see people who would have like different capabilities and be like like how are they doing this and i kind of just like talked to them and like learn and like kind of like just met them online i was like you know like could you explain to me how you're actually like, like kind of like essentially like modding is like essentially cheating, but it's like, um, it, it ended up like teaching me a ton. So it's like, I was asking, you know, like, how are you doing this? Like, you know, like, where are you learning how to install these chips? Where can I get them? Um, so it's actually back in the day, there's a huge like forum community around Halo and mod and mod chips. Um, so there used to be like Halo forums. They say like, like be on there all the time. People would share like their different mods that they would do for the game and uh, kind of just learn from there. Um, so, so at yeah. what point did you realize what you were doing was computer programming? Or yeah. related. Yeah. So like I, I didn't actually write the mods myself. It was more just like I would take other people's mods and load them onto my Xbox. Um, but and, pretty and much, a mod is just a piece of software that you download and install. Is that what, you're, is that yeah, what it is, or but, is it an actual hardware chip or something? So it's actually both. So like to be able to like load arbitrary game files onto the, your Xbox, like you need to actually install a mod chip, and that allows you to basically like you can like then copy Halo the game onto your hard drive and then mess with the game files in there, um, and then you can essentially just run Halo from your hard drive, and then the, the system would think you're playing it from a disc. Um, so that's kind of how you could like get around the system. It's essentially like, it's like jailbreaking for, for Xboxes. Wow. Um, so yeah, pretty much. And then the tools I would use to load these game files that were like super complicated. Obviously you can imagine they don't have like a, like a beautiful UI <laughs> to upload these things. So it's like, I'd be very interested in like, you know, like I'm downloading these weird files and I'm loading them on my hard drive. Like what's actually going on here. Um, so I kind of just like learned more and more from there. Um, and then, yeah, and then I really got into like computer gaming as well. And that's where it kind of led me to building my own computer. Cause I wanted like a better graphics card or a better processor. Um, and kind of and then, like I said, like in middle school, I ended up taking a, a programming course uh, that kind of helped me get into learning like formal programming as opposed to kind of just like ad hoc, like hacks and stuff like that. Wow. So you were doing this before middle school? It was around middle school. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I was so, very lucky. My parents kind of like let me tinker around with these things. Like I definitely like broke a couple Xboxes in this process. So I was definitely not perfect at, at that age. Um, so, yeah. So at what point did you realize, I mean, it sounds like you kind of always figured, like knew this, but what point did you realize this was something that you wanted to continue to learn and get better at and, and study in school and then study in college? Yeah, um, I, like I think I was always a big math person. So what was really exciting for me about programming is like, you know, it's very like math based, like you can kind of apply principles in math, like to algorithms and kind of, it's almost like putting math into action. Like, um, like you know, you can do like to, to do like proofs in math, like all you really need is like a pencil and paper and kind of like just the imagination to think up different proofs. Whereas like, when you if you want to build something like with computer science like all you really need is a computer and access to an internet connection and like the world is kind of yours um because there's lots of resources online to learn um so that's really exciting to me is like it's unlike some majors like say chemistry which are definitely like very important like but like i don't need a lab to do things in computer science like it's very exciting like just to have a computer and internet connection and you can kind of like do whatever you need to do um so it's very low friction to getting into programming and that's what really excited me about it um compared to other different majors that i could have studied what was the first thing that you did outside of gaming, like some kind of pr computer programming uh, you know, that you did besides gaming? Um, yeah, definitely. It would probably be the ones that I just did in like my university curriculum. Um, I didn't do like many side projects when I was younger. Um, it was mostly just like, you know, taking like, the, I think the first programming language I learned was basic um, okay. in, that, in that middle school class. And then in high school, they, they, I did the AP curriculum, the advanced placement curriculum. And what they used is Java back in the day. Um, so yeah, we'd be writing Java and like in those, in those classes there, we'd make like small games and things like that. Um, but I didn't do too many side projects. It was mostly just like just continuing with the gaming <laughs> in, uh, in high school. So uh, you yeah. studied, you went to like university and got a computer science degree? Yeah. Yeah. So I ended up studying computer science and math. Where did you go? Uh, university of Virginia. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's, is that U of A? Yeah. UVA. Yep. What, what's your mascot? 
Uh, it's it's the like it's um the Cavaliers. Like the, yeah, the Cavaliers. Yeah, right. Okay. Wow, that's like a really cool school. I think I think I might have applied there for law school. Oh, awesome. Yeah, I think they have a pretty good law program. Um, okay, yeah. so you graduated. What did you do after you graduated? Did you know that you wanted to continue doing programming, and did you just get a job, or how did? What yeah, happened? yeah. So, um, so yeah, so I graduated 2014 and joined Imager right away. But I think uh, what kind of helps give some background is um, throughout my time at university, I did a lot of internships. Um, so like I, pretty much every summer at university, I did an internship, and that kind of like helped me kind of scope, you know, where I wanted to be like coming out of school, like what kind of size company I wanted to go to. Um, so my first like actual professional internship was after my freshman year, I joined Microsoft. Um, so I ended up working on the, um, like the, the Azure data market team. So Azure is kind of like their cloud offering at Microsoft and the data market team specifically is basically like within their kind of like their, they're essentially their AWS. Like they offer like some public data set APIs that you can interact with. Um, so for example, the project I worked on was like drug safety information. So it's pretty much an API that provided drug safety information to people who used their cloud services. So basically if you had an app that was hosted on Azure and you need to pull in drug safety information, like you could use their API for that. Um, so that's, that's the first internship I did out of university. Um, wow. yeah. And then, so then, then from there I ended up joining Microsoft again for a second summer. Um, except that time I switched over to a different team, which is the Bing ads team. Um, and I worked on like pretty much developer productivity tools there. So it was mostly like, um, like working on a tool to help internal continuous integration there. So it was like, you know, spinning up machines with different builds of, of the, of the team stack and kind of like running like tests and making sure everything was okay. Um, so it wasn't necessarily user facing for that project, but it was mostly uh, developer facing tools. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah, that was the second summer, and then and you're like the, a programming genius. <laughs> no, no, no. I just I'm, I'm really like uh, like I was very like adamant on getting industry experience, like in addition to school experience, because I wanted to know like where I wanted to go out of school, and like the only really way to do that was kind of like to drop myself in really random internships and kind of go from there. Um, so I think that the third internship that was like my most fun was was probably at, was at Twitter. Um, so I worked on the email notifications team at Twitter. Um, so pretty much like uh, anytime you get an email notification from Twitter, um, like I had worked on the team that worked on the email front end for that. Um, so pretty much like the HTML and CSS for that email. Where didn't you work? <laughs> uh, so so th th those, are, those are the three internships. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, wow. yeah, then went, to, then went to Imager after school. Um, so wow. yeah, that kind of brought that. So basically like the, the, the things I learned from those internships, like helped me determine like, you know, I wanted to go to a smaller company and that was Imager. So I ended up joining one, like, uh, like I think it was under 20 people at the time. Um, so kind of going from like Microsoft, which is like a gigantic company uh, to Twitter, which is relatively small compared to Microsoft and then even smaller to go into Imager out of school. So at Imager and at Tumblr, and just in your professional experience, like not necessarily the people that you come across at, at those companies, but mm -hmm. even just in your professional circles, are your peers very similar to you? Or are you seeing people that don't have a background like you? Maybe they've only been programming for a few years. iOS is their first platform. Uh, Objective-C is their first language. Or Swift might even be their first language. I guess what I'm kind of getting at is, there are a lot of people who are moving from one one thing, one type of background, or or they're just getting into to programming. Um, and to see someone like you who has like so much experience, it can be kind of intimidating. They want to feel like if they put the work in, then they can accomplish it. Um, do you see people like that who have these like maybe non-traditional backgrounds at companies like Tumblr and Imager? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I definitely have teammates that are not from non-computing backgrounds. Like, um, so I have a teammate who's like uh, from a literary, literary background and actually turned into be an iOS developer. Um, so it's definitely possible. And the thing that I like to, that I love about like programming is the fact that, like I mentioned earlier, like all you really need is a computer and an access to an internet connection. And like really from there, like you can learn um, anything you need to learn. And it's really like, like, I like to think of it this way, like, um, there's a really like cool, like idea that I try to have in my life, which is like, it's not about your, it's not about your y-intercept, it's about your slope. Um, so like, even though like I may have started programming really early and that may have like given me a figuratively larger y-intercept, like 
it re- all that really matters is your, your slope, like the rate at which you're learning things. Um, so like, so like, even if you've like just started programming recently, like if you're learning at a really fast rate, like you can, you can, you can be on the same playing field as someone's been programming for multiple years. Um, like obviously it's like hard to get that experience, like over time that you kind of like those different lessons you learn. But you know, if you're learning, if you're learning relatively fast, like there's no reason that you can't be like at these companies. Um, and that definitely seemed that to be the case from the former teammates, like who come from non-computing backgrounds, like they just have like an aptitude for learning and um, they just soak in knowledge when they work, when they, when they come across it. And you feel like that they're bringing um, different things to the table, but that are just as valuable. I mean, that's what you kind of hear about diversity, bringing these different perspectives. Do you kind of agree with that? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Like, I think some of the best teams I've worked on are the more diverse teams. Um, and I've definitely noticed in that the output of the team. That's awesome. Because that, that and that gives me a lot of, uh, makes me feel good. It makes me feel hopeful because, mm-hmm. you know, outsider looking in, I really want to, like, I would love to work at a company like Tumblr or Imager or any, or Twitter. Um, but, you know, there is like, you have to put in that work. And I definitely am doing that. Mm-hmm. But it's just great to hear um, that from someone like you. Yeah. So before we transition to you know your experience with uh, Swift and uh, iOS development, um, when uh, I wanted to get your perspective on uh, you know you're someone who has a lot of experience building these APIs, right? But then uh, at some point, even at Imager, you were building their API. But then at some point, it occurred to you you wanted to switch to iOS development and client side code, you know, the clients that consume those APIs. Um, can you talk a little bit about that experience? What's going through your head? And uh, yeah, can you can you share that with us? Yeah, definitely. Um, so kind of to kind of give some background on that transition. Um, so like when I was working at Imager, I worked on the API for majority of my time there. I ended up switching over to the iOS team. Um, and immediately when I switched over to the iOS team, like I'm writing it, like an app against that, that consumes the API I was previously writing. And um, you begin to see a lot of the pain points that are actually like um, with, with, with integrating with the API. And like some of the main concerns were things like, you know, you want to minimize the number of network requests that the app has to make to get any piece of information that needs to display any given screen. Um, so that's like a big thing because like notoriously cell connection is generally unreliable. You want to assume that like a user is on a really slow connection. Um, so things like, you know, like giving them all the resources they need within a given API request, like not having them to, not having the client have to make multiple requests to get the information they need. Um, Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So for example, like instead of like throwing someone down like a bunch of like uh, like friend ID identifiers, like actually giving them like a fully hydrated object with like the, the, the metadata about a given friend. If you're pulling down a friends list, for example, like instead of just returning simply like an array of IDs of a given friend, like uh, like user IDs, like actually returning those like hydrated objects so that the client can like render that uh, in a more meaningful way as opposed to having to make a second network request um, to load information that it needs in the client. Um, and yeah, there's like a bunch of different, so basically like switching over from like the backend side to the client side, it really gave me more empathy in terms of like how I design my APIs. Um, because it actually made me a better API designer, like when I was actually consuming my own APIs. How were you able to go from from designing APIs at Imager to designing or you know developing engineering client side code at uh, at Tumblr? Were you working with um, the same language, or were you like did you have experience in in iOS development, or how did that work? Yeah, so we can go into that. Um, so pretty much uh, at Imager, it was a majority, like majority of the code base was Swift. I think right now, the last I talked to an iOS developer there, I think they're like about 90% Swift and then maybe 10% Objective-C because originally the, the uh, Imager app started out as an Objective-C app, uh, but then they quickly just re- rewrote a lot of it in Swift. Um, but actually in that transition, I actually did a, a two-fold way of learning. Um, so pretty much initially I started out with um, kind of just like learning Swift on my own, reading the, like the books that Apple had made and uh, starting by doing like um, small bugs within the app. So pretty much like, like bugs that the team kind of like scoped out to be like really easy to fix for them. But obviously like when I first started out, it took me a while to figure them out, but um, starting out with really low hanging fruit bugs. Um, and then also in addition to like starting with like very small bugs on the iOS team at Imager, um, I did a program called CodePath in San Francisco. 
And um, this program is basically like an eight-week program that helps transition backend engineers to learn iOS and Android development. Um, so I did the iOS program there. And the way it worked is pretty much for two months, um, like, uh, like two, for two days a week after work, I would go to a class and I would actually learn uh, from an iOS instructor, like, you know, how to, how to write Swift apps. And it was really exciting because it was one of the first cohorts of Swift in that program because they previously taught Objective-C. When uh, was this? Yeah, so this was uh, January and February of 2015. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So pretty much, it was, and I was really lucky because my teacher was uh, Benjamin Sandowski, and um, he was the former lead of um, to Twitter for iOS and Mac and iPad as well. And he lead, led that team for five years. Um, so it was really cool to get his experience and kind of like the wisdom he had like kind of like passed on to us from like his experience at Twitter for five years. Um, so I got to learn Swift from him. And uh, so I did that in conjunction with working at Imager at the same time. And um, that really kind of like helped speed up my rate of learning because um, everybody in the class is like already an engineer. So they kind of just like helped senior, they helped like back-end engineers transition to doing uh, mobile. Um, so it's kind of like they kind of just skipped like the, the introduction fundamentals and kind of went, okay, you know, like here is the equivalent concept and on the back-end side to the iOS side. Wait, so you, you were doing APIs at Imager, but how did it, did they want you to start like uh, learning front end? Did they send you to CodePath? Like what was that? Uh, yes. Yeah. So it was mostly self-directed um, because the API was at a point where it was pretty stable and all the feature, the functionality was complete uh, for the new versions of the app. So it's kind of like I had extra bandwidth on my plate to where I was like, you know what? Like I feel like the amount of stuff on my plate is not as much as I could be doing. So I kind of like, like I kind of, I, I talked to my manager. I was like, you know what? I really want to learn iOS. Like, is there any, like, can I t pick up some extra tickets? And then um, for CodePath, I ended up just applying on my own. Um, like there's a way to have your company sponsor you to do CodePath, um, except I just applied independently um, to, to join the program. Wow, that is so interesting. Okay, but I'm assuming at Tumblr, the app is all Objective-C. Maybe they're starting to implement some Swift code. Yeah, actually, you'd be surprised. Um, so it's actually a ton of Swift in the, in the Tumblr app. Um, I don't know in terms of percentage, it's probably 40% Swift and 60% Objective-C. Like it's a gigantic app. Um, I don't know the exact percentage. That's just like a rough ballpark, uh, maybe 30, 70. Um, but there's actually a lot of Swift within the app. Um, yeah. So, so then yeah. When, when you went, like, did you actually end up doing a lot of iOS development at Imager before you went to Tumblr? Um, yeah, so I did about like six months of iOS development there. And um, in between- That was all in Swift? Uh, yeah, that was majority in Swift. I did have to dip into Objective-C every so often. Um, but then, yeah, between, uh, between Imager and Tumblr, I had about a three-month break. Um, and what I did during that three-month break was I did a program called the Recurse Center. Um, it used to be formerly called Hacker School, um, if you've heard that program. No, I, ha I haven't, but I'd like to take a look and we'll link to it. Yeah, sure. So basically, it's a, it's a program in New York. And the best way to kind of describe it is like it's a, basically a programmer. It's like a writing retreat for programmers, uh, except you're not literally writing. You're, just, you're working on essentially whatever you want. Um, so the way the program works is like you spend three months in New York in like a, basically essentially a co-working space um, in the middle of the city. And you, kind of, you have mentors and in, like a, in a given cohort is about 30 people. And um, you essentially work on whatever projects you want. Um, so there's people there doing Haskell, Python, beginner programmers, like experienced programmers, pretty much like all ranges of people. And um, it's basically a three months of dedicated time to work on essentially whatever you want. Um, and the way that the program works is after those three months, they help place you into their partner companies. Um, and one of those companies is Tumblr. And um, so during that three months time, I kind of just like worked on a bunch of small side apps that I wanted to make and uh, kind of like just use that time as a way to kind of like increase my iOS experience before joining Tumblr. Um, and so do yeah. you have to pay to go to Recurse or do you get like a fellowship or a sponsorship or something? Um, no, you don't have to pay, but you do have to pay for your own rents in the city, <laughs> which is not cheap for sure. Um, but like the way they make money is like uh, if you get placed in one of their partner companies, uh, th that's, how they, that's how they do their business. That sounds really cool. I want to yeah. participate. <laughs> yeah, so it used to be called Hacker School. It's now called Recurse Center, like R-E-C-U-R-S-E. Um, yeah, it's, it's a great program. Um, like I've written a couple of blog posts about it. Like the way they run their, um, they actually have like social rules in place, which kind of makes sure it's a very safe environment for any programmer, like whether new or experienced. And um, it's really cool. It's like, it's almost like, 
a slice of heaven in the programming community because you kind of spend like three months doing whatever you want and it's like a really awesome environment to learn. Okay, so you spend three months at Recurse Center and then they place you at Tumblr. Yeah. And then what are you seeing at Tumblr? Is, is your first project uh, iOS Objective-C or is it Swift? Um, so it's actually like a mix of both. I like the, my, my two most recent projects have been by Pure Swift, um, but like it'll, it'll, it'll basically fluctuate based on like what the, like the feature is related to. So for example, if it's, if it's fixing a bug on an older feature that was written in Objective-C, like I'll, I'll mostly be writing Objective-C. Um, but basically the rule of thumb for the app now is like if you're writing any new functionality, um, it needs to be in Swift unless there's like a very good reason for it to be in Objective-C. Um, and then basically if you are writing Objective-C, like if it's just a small modification to an existing file, like you can go ahead and just redo it, redo it or like fix it in Objective-C. But if it's like a large refactor of that file, like try to port it in Swift if you can, if that makes sense. Um, so, yeah. so what what did you, when you're like, you're learning Swift, but then you, you're working at these companies that have Objective-C code. Like, what did you do? Did you say, hey, give me a second, let me learn Objective-C? Or did they just give you time to figure it out? Or what, what did you do to, to keep up? Yeah. So, right. Yeah. So pretty much, I think at this point now, like if I were to start learning iOS, like I would basically say like, you know, learn how to read Objective-C, but you don't necessarily have to learn how to be like fluent in writing it. Like, cause a lot of things when you look up examples, like you'll need to like, they'll be written in Objective-C or like previous tutorials. Um, so that's kind of how I took my approach when I was first learning Objective-C. I was like, you know, first let me just like figure out how to read Objective-C. Um, and then I like, I, to, in terms of learn, to learn, learning how to write it fluently, I kind of like did it kind of like in a lazy loading manner. Like whenever I need to learn how to do a specific thing in Objective-C, like I just learned it on the fly. Um, or like basically I would like learn how to do the equivalence of basic Swift uh, paradigms in Objective-C. And then if I need to do anything more advanced, I kind of learn it as I go. Um, so like in some of the interviews, like some companies, like not Tumblr specifically would require me to do like um, Objective-C in the interviews. Um, but basically I try to make sure that like in preparing for those interviews, I knew how to like generally work my way around in Objective-C. Um, okay. Yeah. So like, like yes, yeah, so obviously some of them will require you some, have some basic knowledge of Objective-C, but, um, Okay. So Tumblr is yeah. not hiring iOS engineers that have no Objective-C experience. Yeah. I definitely say like you have to have some, but ba like the thing is like, don't be intimidated by that because I've actually learned Swift first and then Objective-C second. So it definitely is doable. Um, like you can, you can kind of learn on the fly. And the thing is that like, when you actually learn Swift first and Objective-C second, you kind of actually write, sometimes you actually end up writing a better Objective-C because you have like the, you have the Swift mindset in mind um, in terms of like type safety and some of the patterns of Swift. Um, so that can definitely help. That's interesting. Okay. So I, I want to get into all this uh, Swift and, and especially your experience going from Swift and then Objective-C. Um, you have, you have more than a little bit of Objective-C experience, I'm assuming. Yeah. So yeah, I'd love to get that because going from Swift and then to Objective-C, to me, I feel like that um, that actually would be easier for me personally because mm -hmm. when I first started learning iOS development, I tried learning Objective-C and I was like, I don't know what this is. Mm -hmm. But um, now I feel like I'm maybe not too intimidated to, to learn. So mm -hmm. I want to get into that. But before we do, I just want to thank one of my Learn Swift LA members. His name is Emil. He, uh, he's like a, some kind of scientist. I can't remember. He was like like some kind of like nuclear physicist or something. We were just talking about it the other day and he comes to the meetup. He always contributes. He gives me um, like a lot of positive feedback and encouragement. And I just want to say thank you to him for, for coming out and uh, yeah, for, for just, you know, making, you know, giving a positive uh, impact onto the meetup. So Emil, thank you so much. Hope you're listening. All right. So I want to talk to, uh, to you about your experience with Swift specifically. We kind of already got into it, but Swift comes out June 2014. Uh, are you aware of it? Where were you? Or were you not really on the iOS kind of radar at that point? Uh, yeah, it wasn't uh, on the iOS radar at that point. But I had remember I was watching the WWDC at work um, like at, when they made the announcement. So that was really exciting. And that kind of like was like, kind of lodged in the back of my head. Like when I decided to switch into uh, doing iOS development, that, you know, like this is a really good time to, to hop in. 
and okay. to learn. So did you start learning it immediately or did you, you said you uh, did the uh, code path in January, 2015, yeah. but did you, did you not learn at all or, or pay attention at all to Swift until then? Or were you kind of dabbling with it? Yeah, kind of, I would just say I was dabbling. Like I, I read, the, I read the, um, the book that they put out in iBooks and kind of just like kind of learned it on the side and just like wasn't doing any like serious apps with it just kind of like learning on my own free time. Um, okay. But I didn't really seriously cons- like start jumping into it until like the January and February of 2015. So uh, before then, before you uh, entered CodePath, you were still doing a lot of the API um, development at Imager. Yeah. Okay. So then, what's going on in your mind? Um, you decide to to join CodePath. What are you? What's sort of going on in your your head at that point? Why Why Swift and like why CodePath? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I guess the for the second for the why Swift question, it was kind of like you know it's a great time to learn iOS development. Like everybody became a beginner again, which is really exciting to me. And kind of like you know we can really mix in different communities. Like people from the Ruby community can hop into iOS. Like it was a really great time because now it's like you have all this blending of different patterns from different communities, and it kind of like almost was like kind of like a, like a Renaissance period for the iOS community. It was like you know we're bringing a ton of new developers and a ton of new ideas and, and patterns. Um, so I really wanted to hop in there and kind of like help like um, help with that. And also it was a really cool time like. Um, to be able to like, you know, like I mentioned earlier, like, you know, like help like inform style guides, um, kind of help build these like foundational blocks that just weren't there because Swift was so new. Um, so it was a really exciting time in that regard. And then um, in terms of the why code path, it was because like since being a previously an API engineer, um, like that program really like lent itself well to me because it was like it helped API engineer or previously like back engineers transition to, to mobile. Um, okay. So it was like kind of like a really a fast track um, to learning to learning mobile development. That program is specifically for you know a programmer like you that it has a one type of background or, or experience and they want to move into to mobile is that sort of yeah they also have a design track too so if you're a designer and you want to learn ios or android they also have a track for that as well um and they're currently actually experimenting with the school program as well where they're running like remote classes across the, the united states um where they teach students ios development and android development um so that's still an experimental phase right now but um, they're trying to expand the students as well I think they have a podcast called iOS Bytes. Is that Code Path or is that Code School? Um, that might anyways. be Code School. Um, okay. Yeah, I don't, I'm not familiar with any Code Path uh, podcast. So, what is the what is the teaching style at Code Path for for you know whatever the immersive course that you did? Is it very practical? Is it a mix of theoretical? Um, it's it's like I'd say it's like uh, like light on the theoretical side and more practical. Um, so basically, what they did is on uh, Mondays we had a lecture. Um, so basically, Ben would give us a lecture on Mondays after after work. And then um, Wednesdays, we had a lab session. So pretty much every week, we had a specific lab. Um, and it would try to accomplish a specific topic, like, for example, fetching information from an API. Um, so for example, one of our labs was like um, making a very basic Instagram feed. Um, and we'd come into that lab on Wednesday afternoon and essentially like part, pair program with other like classmates and uh, work on that lab. And then um, pretty, pretty much also every week, we had an offline like um, assignment that we had to work on. So these are basically like to basically get us through the major aspects of iOS development, like networking. Uh, image loading, uh, collection views, table views, like a bunch of different areas. And um, so pretty much for eight weeks, we had a, a project every single week. Um, and then also we had, a, so actually we had a project every week for the first four weeks. And then the last four weeks we worked on group projects. Um, so for an entire month, we basically built like an app in a group of four. Um, and we worked on that for the, la- the remaining four weeks. Um, so yeah, it was very practical in the sense that it's, it was project-based. Um, and then there basically was only really one lecture a week. Um, so eight lectures overall in the program. And it was all Swift, no Objective C. Um, so they did have an Objective C cohort for ours because Objective C had just like was still relatively new. Um, so they actually, in our in our cohort, there is um, one Objective C class and one and one Swift class. Um, previously, they're all Objective C classes before Swift had come out, and then now they're all Swift classes. Now that Objective C is kind of fading out in terms of like for new programmers. Um, right. Yeah. So it's kind of that transition period. Man, that's cool. I'm. I don't know. I wonder if I'll take one of. I mean, even you, like you have all this experience in programming, but even you went to 
CodePath. You even went to Recurse Center. Mm-hmm. Um, like I wouldn't guess that someone with so much experience would need to do that. Um, but uh, I think I might maybe one day. I mean, I'd like to if I had the opportunity, if I could do it. It seems like a really great way to accelerate your learning. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Recurse Center is open to anyone of any experience level. Um, so it was, for me, it was like I wanted to take a break and kind of like, since I was already transitioning to a new domain, um, use it as time to kind of like really ramp up my own. And um, yeah, and, Co- and CodePath as well. Like it was just a way to kind of fast track my learning in a specific domain. So you started learning in January 2015. It sounds like the way you went about learning was mostly through CodePath, at least at first. Yeah. Um, how do you, how do you, after CodePath, like how did you continue your learning? Yeah, so I would definitely say like, like so also concurrently as well, I was also working on the iOS team at Imager. So like I initially started out with those small bugs and basically tried to like, like tackle on larger and larger features. Um, but what was really crucial as well is that I worked with very senior engineers um, at Imager. Wow. And um, so like basically pair programming with them was awesome. So like I basically like, Pair program with the iOS engineers there and just like kind of watch their workflows, see how they do things in Xcode, uh, what language features they use in Swift and Objective-C. And it was really fun because like uh, in the team, like I was one of the first people to learn Swift. So it's kind of like I would help teach them Swift and they would help teach me more of like the iOS fundamentals and like core topics and that within iOS are kind of language agnostic. Um, so it was really fun in that regard. Um, so we basically did a lot of pair programming that helped me learn as well. We are doing live coding at my Learn Swift LA meetup and I get a lot out of it by showing people like what I know, but then because of their questions, um, I end up learning new things that I never thought of. For sure. And so I never done pair programming, but that's to me, it's kind of similar. And I can see how that uh, can be really uh, beneficial and like a good learning experience. Yeah. So I want to talk to you about going from Swift to Objective C. Uh, what was it? I don't know. Was it kind of like, what was it like? I mean, was it easy to get going? Like, how did you do that? Did you just ask somebody or did you just start playing around with it? Yeah, I would say mostly just like start playing around with it. Um, so that kind of like as I, so the, I'd say like what definitely helped is like learning first how to just read Objective-C. So for example, if I was like implementing a feature and I looked up something on Stack Overflow or a tutorial online and it was written in Objective-C, um, just kind of like learning how to translate that to Swift or in, like in the act of translating Objective-C to Swift that helped me learn. Um, and then, yeah, and just like also like, Essentially, like when, for example, like for example, automatic reference counting and learning like from weak and strong references and unknown, unknown references, like that, that's how it's done in Swift. And then kind of like learning how the equivalents are done in Objective C. So kind of like I would take any concept I was familiar with in Swift and try to map it over to Objective C and see like you know are there equivalents? Sometimes there aren't equivalents, um, and and see you know like, how would I do it in Objective C? Um, so it's very much a lot of just googling like okay, I know how to do this in Swift. Like what's the equivalent in Objective C? Um, so kind of almost like just like you don't want to like transliterate like exactly um, because there's definitely like certain Objective-C paradigms and certain Swift paradigms that you want to follow. But like the act of like translating Objective-C code to Swift code um, definitely helped me learn Objective-C. For people that are learning iOS development right now, let's say they're learning Swift and they're hoping to, you know, get a job within the, let's say by the end of the year, would you say how much um, time, if at all, would you say they should try to devote to maybe creating a, an Objective-C project and learning Objective-C? Um, I would say definitely like, so at the bare minimum, learn, know how to read Objective-C. Um, it's obviously very dependent on the company. Like at an older company like Tumblr, like there's a lot of Objective-C code. Um, but if you're going to be joining a relatively small startup that's starting like today, like chances are they're probably going to be using Swift. Um, but so I'd say probably in terms of like the amount of time you invest, I'd probably say probably th- like 30 to 35% of your preparation time in the interview should probably be dedicated to Objective-C. Um, like usually if you interview with the company and they force you to use Objective-C in their interview process, that's generally a red flag. Um, because like they, it, at this point in time, like they should already be trying to adopt Swift or they should like try to update their interview process to be using Swift. Um, so if they ever force you to Objective-C, that's generally a red flag, unless there's a very good reason for them to dip into Objective-C. Um, but obviously like there are companies that have Objective-C code bases, so you need to learn how to navigate those as well. 
Uh, so that's why I say like about 30 to 35% of your preparation time should probably be dedicated to Objective-C. Wow. Okay. I got to step it up. <laughs> so can you tell us more about public extension and also how that might relate to Swift open source? Yeah, definitely. Um, so public extension is basically a small like Twitter account that I run on the side. And pretty much I try to every weekday tweet out a, like a handy extension I've either come up with or found on the internet um, to the Swift, like either standard library or like custom types uh, within Swift. And um, it's been really fun because like extensions are a really cool language feature of Swift that allow you to kind of add functionality to a given type. Um, so for example, if you want to add a function or like a, a property to string and basically like where it trims white space in the left and right of a string, like you can do that and you can use that in your project. And what's really cool is that this doesn't require things like subclassing, um, which is typically bad. Um, like to, and like you can add this functionality to an existing type without having to make a subclass of that type. Um, so I find ex like um, extensions to be a really cool feature of Swift. Um, so public extension is basically just a way to kind of publicize those. There's um, <laughs> a play on words there. And then uh, to kind of just like kind of share them with the larger community and kind of like, like make, make some of them more well-known. And then, uh, in terms of Swift going open source, like part of my hope is to eventually like add some of these extensions to the standard library. Um, there's one in particular that I really want to add, um, and I think that'd be a really cool way to add, like contribute. And I kind of like a kind of relatively easy way to, to contribute. So if anyone's interested in adding to open source Swift, like extensions might be a great place to start. So some people that I've read, you know, on the the Swift open source kind of back and forth the mailing list, there'll be a very basic kind of response. It's like this doesn't need to be a part of the standard library. Do you know? Can you tell us about that distinction? Like why, in some cases, should an extension just be an extension? And why does it make sense for an extension to be a part of the standard library? Yeah, so definitely, there's definitely a balance there. Like you can definitely go overboard with, with like adding too much functionality to a given type. Um, so like a standard library should have like a notion of like, it, it gives you what you need and not too much more. Um, whereas extensions, like their value is kind of like, like an ad hoc way. Like if your project needs like to use a certain functionality over and over again, like you should add that in your project, but that shouldn't necessarily be available to everybody in the entire Swift community. Uh, so definitely a balance there, like in terms of what extensions are valuable um, within, like wh whether they should be in the standard library or they should be within your, your project specifically. Um, so yeah. have you proposed an extension yet or are you planning on doing one soon? Uh, yeah, I have one that I plan on doing, but I just can't do it yet because there's not functionality for it yet. Um, so pretty okay. much the, what the, the way the extension would work, um, I, I'd also like to tweet with Joe Graf about this. Um, it's basically kind of making generic, or like it needs generic subscripts. So kind of how we were talking about earlier with subscripts, you can add the specific types. So basically being able to like, index on with like the left and right brackets um, on a given type. Um, a generic subscript basically says like you can index in a generic fashion, so with any arbitrary type. Um, so a common way of like um, that we do in the, actually in the Tumblr project is like say we're parsing out um, like specific fields within a dictionary that's returned from, a, from like a JSON API. Um, we'll have specific keys that we're looking for. Um, so for example, like the user ID, like the username, uh, things like that. And basically what we'll do is we'll, we'll encode these keys in an, in an enumeration. Um, and what's cool about enumeration is that they can have things called raw values. So you can have a raw value of a string. So you can basically index on an array um, with this enumeration and then get the string value out of it and use that as your key to index in this dictionary. Um, so what would be cool is instead of having to like always access the raw value of that enumeration when you're indexing on this dictionary, you kind of have an extension uh, for a generic subscript that allows you to basically just like feed the enumeration value directly instead of having to fetch the string out of the enumeration to, uh, to get the value out. Like uh, you, I'm wondering, are you saying like just say the case, like so dot whatever case number one, rather than saying dot case number one dot raw value? Exactly. Just, yep. You got okay. it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, and that's something that you can't do right now? Uh, yeah, because there's no generic subscripts. Um, so basically this would like, or the way to do this, I think you can maybe do it in an ad hoc fashion, but the way like if you want to do it in the standard library, you'd want it to be generic. So basically you can say like add an extension to dictionary that adds a subscript um, where you have an enumeration whose raw value is a string. Um, and then add this to it like an ex add this as a subscript to any dictionary whose key is a string. 
um, and then you can kind of index in on that. Um, so right now that's not possible. So in one of my previous projects, I had a, you know, like a constants file. I'd have all my string constants in there. I was actually mm-hmm. using them as structs, but then I realized I should try to use them as enumerations like you're describing. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go play around with that. Yeah, one of the I think also Natasha the robot, um, who's really big in the Swift community, has a post on like um, the value using an enumeration over a struct in that this kind of scenario. Um, like one benefit as well is like you don't have collision of keys. So if you have like constants in a struct, like you can have the same duplicate value, whereas enumeration you can't. Um, so it's really helpful as well. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So let's talk a little bit more about. Um, Swift open source uh, and well, keeping up with it. You just mentioned Natasha the robot. Can mm-hmm. you, you need to talk about like who these people are that you follow? I, it sounds like I follow some of the the same people you do. Yeah. So um, yeah, basically like a big way I keep up with like Swift open source and this and the iOS community in general is Twitter. Um, so I like to follow a lot of people on Twitter. So Natasha the robot. I think her last name is uh, Natasha or it's Natasha Morishev is her full name, I believe. If I'm right. pronouncing that correctly. Um, but yeah, she actually runs a great newsletter called This Week in Swift. Um, so if you're definitely not subscribed to that, I'll subscribe to it as well. Um, and yeah, like, so I following a lot of iOS developers on Twitter, um, like weekly newsletters as well is a very great way to keep up. Um, so like, have you reached out to any of them? Uh, I have not personally, um, or actually, sorry for, for Natasha's actually one of my like, previous blog posts actually got into her this week in Swift, um, article or, or one of her issues actually really exciting. Nice. Yeah. I was excited about that. Um, it was basically like a blog post about like, um, how to do interactive notifications in iOS. So like when you get a notification, yes, sometimes you can like. You, there's different buttons associated with that notification. Like or you can, reply or like. Exactly. And also there's like the free form text input like for iMessage when you get an iMessage. So adding that right. functionality to your app. Um, and then she ended up seeing it and then and then put it in her, uh, put in her newsletter, which is really exciting. You wrote that blog post? Yeah. We can link to it in the show notes. For sure. Cool. So anybody else? Um, I think, yeah, Jesse Squires is also a really great one. Um, he runs basically like the Swift Weekly Brief, which is a summary of kind of like the activity in the Swift open source community for that given week, which is really nice. How, so, how yeah. do you think he does that, man? Like, I don't. Where does he get the time, yeah. like, to go through all that? Yeah, I think he's actually uh, like asking for help now because it's it's definitely a big undertaking. Like, there's lots of repos out there um, in terms of like under uh, Apple's GitHub account, um, and to keep up with all that is definitely a huge undertaking. <laughs> um, Have you reached out to him at all? Uh, no, I haven't got a chance to reach out to him. Um, but yeah, I think that'd be like a like once I if I once I start like like being more active in Swift open source, I think that'd be a great way to like kind of help out and like pitch and saying, oh, this is something interesting I saw within the mailing list. They're helping parse that out. Yeah, I kind of want to reach out to him, but uh, I feel like he's such like a star in the Swift like community that I'm kind of like shy, you know. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is that like um, everybody in the Swift community is definitely like is very approachable, and that's like the beauty of Twitter is that like you know you can kind of like just tweet at them and say, hey, I'm running into this issue, or I think this would be great for your newsletter. Um, like, let me know what you think, and generally people are pretty receptive to that. So what's uh, some new Swift language feature that you recently learned? Um, yes, yeah, so this, this kind of goes to um, what we had mentioned earlier about how we actually met um, one of that, that one specific public extension. Um, it's actually the uh, at non-Objective-C attribute. Um, so pretty much attributes in Swift are usually prefixed with the at symbol. And um, it turns out that there's in Swift, there's a way to, so by default, um, certain things in Swift bridge back to Objective-C. So if you need to use like something that you wrote in Swift in Objective-C, you can do that. Um, and by default, some things are bridged back for you. Um, but it actually turns out there's an at non-objective C keyword in Swift where you can basically use that to annotate either a function or a type, and that'll tell the compiler, hey, like don't bridge this back for me. And um, the reason there is because it's sometimes like there's certain things in Swift that the compiler will try to bridge back for you, but you don't want it to bridge back because that'll lead to compiler errors. Um, so that was actually like actually I didn't even know about. It's actually like hidden in the in the Swift book. It's like a small little like paragraph about it. Like oh, by the way, you can do this if you don't want it to bridge back. Um, so that actually came out to be really helpful in that extension. That was what I didn't really understand at first when you you tweeted the, like the first portion of that subscript and then you wrote about it more yeah. in that blog post. 
Um, th- that's not that's what I didn't understand. So it's basically like subscript. There's an Objective C subscript. Yeah. Um, but you, but there's also a Swift one, and you were kind of telling the compiler, hey, don't bridge to the Objective C one. Yeah. So if you want to go into detail about that, so the way that works is um so so Objective so Swift supports custom subscripting, and also Objective C does too. Um, but the way that Objective C does custom subscripting is that it, it adds a specific selector to your type, um, which is fine. But um, the thing is that like this the subscript I was trying to do for um, the Swift side of things it had the same type signature all the way up until the return type. So pretty much like um, when you do like Boolean for key or int for key, it takes in the same parameter, which is just a string for the given key. But the thing is it returns different types. It re- can either return a Boolean or it can return an int or some arbitrary type. Um, and that's called like um, like return type polymorphism. So pretty much like in Swift, that's a first class citizen. Like you can have different functions that return different types and have the same signature. Um, but the thing in Objective-C is though, the signature is only determined by the selector. So like the um, the selector is just being like like the name of the function and what arguments it takes. So when it bridges it back, it actually it'll bridge back just the the parameters and the name of it, but it doesn't account for the return type. So in Objective C, it's complaining like, hey, I have two definitions of a subscript that are the same exact thing, so you can't redeclare them. Um, so the way you prevent that compiler is is by telling the compiler, hey, don't bridge this back to Objective C because Objective C can't do the same function name with different return types um, because that's just not a concept that Objective C supports. Wow. That was a mouthful. <laughs> yeah, hopefully that makes sense. I can, all right, yeah, basically the, the idea is like you can't, in Objective-C, there's no such idea as a function that can return different types with the same signature. Man, you are, <laughs> I'm telling you, you're like a Swift ninja. <laughs> no? I mean, it just, it's, these, kind of, these, these kind of things excite me. And the fact that you told me to, to like, to kind of like explain it in more detail, like kind of how this feature works, helped me learn about it. Um, so that's kind of like, like the, the act of writing this blog post helped me kind of like, like learn the concept and what was really going on under the hood. Well, I'm happy to help. Yeah, yeah, it was cool to to have you mention me. I showed it to my fiance and I was like, look, this is really cool. It was, I don't know, it was super encouraging. Yeah. Like to have someone who's obviously way more experienced um, be, you know, kind of open and, and willing to, to, to talk, you know, over Twitter. Twitter, dude, download yeah. it. Um, all right. So what's something new that you want to learn, like maybe a framework um, and something you haven't learned yet? Yeah, so I want to actually get really into like so server side Swift is definitely still very like like very young. Um, that's something I want to get into. Um, yeah, it's like I writing. Talk to you about that. Yeah, so like so coming from an API background, like the fact that I could potentially be writing my APIs in Swift would be really awesome because it's like you know I get to like may potentially share libraries across my backend and my front end. Um, so basically, if it's like platform agnostic code, say it's like a parsing library or something like that, like I could potentially share it with the API and the client side, which would be really cool. Um, have you started playing around with that yet? Uh, no, I haven't. I haven't done any service at Swift. Like the, the extent of Swift outside of iOS that I've done has just been small scripts. Um, so like just kind of we mentioned earlier, like um, for the compilation time script. Um, but I haven't done any service at Swift yet. But um, that's definitely on my radar. It's like I have a couple tutorials bookmarked that I want to I want to get into, but I haven't done any personally yet. How are you thinking about starting? Are you going to try someone's... There's a couple different like frameworks out there, like Perfect's one of them, IBM has one. Are you? Do you have something in mind or is this something that you can kind of create yourself? Um, I would probably want to start with some of like the frameworks that are already, already out there. Like, yeah, Perfect and IBM were like probably two that I would start with. Um, okay. Yeah, because like I, I like writing the actual framework itself would probably be a bigger undertaking. Like, kind of want to be able to like stand on the shoulders of giants a bit and yeah. um, be able to like you know have like someone else write the server in like probably a more <laughs> efficient way, and then from there write like my application specific logic. Um, so yeah, it's probably like say like my my approach when I start that will probably be like okay, like let's let's like look around on GitHub for the the top like server-side frameworks for Swift and see, you know, which one has the most stars because that's usually a good, like, not always a good indicator of, like, what's a good library, but it usually means that, like, it's it's more vetted in the sense that, like, people are, it's on their radar. Um, so, like, read through their readme's and see what seems promising and try to go from there. Well, once you play around with that, I'm going to want a full <laughs> detailed report in the morning. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> 
So with all of this information out there, everyone's trying to sell you a course and so many tutorials. How do you stay focused and kind of focus on what you need uh, to solve the problems that, you know, that, that you're trying to solve with the language and, and the technologies? Um, like I'd say the way I stay focused is like, you know, like with these, probably with these newsletters, um, just because there's so much information out there, like you can easily get overwhelmed with, you know, like what people are tweeting about and whatever is like constantly new framework every single day. And like, totally. kind of like relying on these newsletters as a way of like a one level of curation on top of that to kind of like say, okay, every week I'll get a digest of like, what's the most important thing I should be keeping my, on my radar uh, for that given week. Um, totally. so I, I'd probably say that's like the primary tactic. Um, and just like, kind of like being selective with who you follow on Twitter. It's like, you know, there's a lot, there's like definitely people who are like tweeting out every single library they run into. And there's also people who kind of like vet it and say, okay, you know, like this is like, like I really like have experience with this library and like I've actually used it in production. Like I really enjoy it. So like, like I recommend it. Um, so kind of making sure like the signal to noise ratio of the, like the sources you get for information are, are in check. A lot of my members, uh, when, when the idea of like a library, a third party framework comes up, I always mention, you know, when you're learning, don't worry about those. Just focus on UI kit and Apple's, um, in the iOS SDK. Uh, what, in your experience, uh, what would you say in terms of like being able to use someone else's library uh, at a company, let's say like, like Tumblr, do you think that it's really important to, to focus on that early on to like learn how to do that? Or do you think that's kind of distracting? Um, so in the, in the context of like Tumblr, uh, like we definitely have like a, like a, a very, like a, re a relatively rigorous process for vetting like libraries to use in our app, just because like when you bring in, like an external dependency into your app, like it's, a, it's a, like sometimes it is a liability. Like if there's like a major bug in that library, like Tumblr as a company would be responsible for that if they bring it in. Um, so like in the, in the context of a company, it's definitely like you have to get, definitely give a case for bringing a library in. That doesn't mean that we don't use libraries. We definitely use open source libraries at Tumblr. Um, but in terms of like personal learning, when I first was learning iOS, like I use libraries all over the place. Um, like a big, a big mantra at CodePath was like, you know, like don't get stuck on something like, like if, if you're trying to work on a project, like don't get stuck like in the weeds on a very specific problem that like that's already been implemented before. Like if you're trying to work on an image cache, like, you know, it's okay to sometimes use a library to help you get you unstuck. Get you unstuck. You know, like how is it actually working under the hood? Um, so I'd say in the beginning when you're learning, like it's okay to use third-party libraries, but as you get, get more and more experience, like you really want to like look under the hood of these libraries and say, you know, like what are they doing? Do I really need to actually bring this library in? And um, especially when you're working at a company, like there are more concerns aside from like just the completion of your project that you want to keep into consideration. Interesting. Okay. So on a kind of a related note then, what would you say makes a good iOS developer? Because to me, I would say third-party libraries are not as important like your ability to to focus on the core like first-party frameworks mm -hmm. um, at least the really important ones sure and that's one really important skill um I, I have like five things i mentioned you know the language mm -hmm. the ide the frameworks the uh, the the library and um and the design patterns do you have anything in particular um that you think uh, makes a good ios developer yeah, definitely. Um, so I, I guess I come from an API background. I definitely say it's like uh, like shared empathy for different teams. Uh, like when you work on an iOS app, like very seldom is it only a client side app unless it's like a game that doesn't have networking. So like oftentimes you'll be interacting with different services and kind of understanding like the concerns for those services and being able to work in an environment where you know you can work with API engineers or you can work with like um, like backend engineers to help you like solve your problems. So kind of having a shared empathy across multiple parts of the stack definitely help make a good iOS developer. Um, and then adding on to what you said as well. Um, like I definitely like I definitely agree that like using core Apple frameworks is like a great skill to have. Um, but also like knowing when like when you do need to bring in a third party library, like if you need like if you want to reinvent reinvent networking from the ground up, sometimes it does help to bring in the library. Um, and then 
and then also I think also like um, the fact that like coming from a like a like a web background where you can um, you can basically essentially like deploy like fixes whenever you can um, like that's definitely not the case in iOS in iOS development like with the app review process like it can take multiple it can take a couple of weeks to get a ship like a like a fix out so what make a great iOS developer is like kind of thinking through like you know what are the possible states that your app can fall into and making sure you account for all of them and like try to like essentially do like defensive programming because like if you ship a bug like and like you can't fix it for another couple of weeks like you need to make sure that you architect your code in such a way that you know you you avoid those scenarios because you can't just like like push out an update and tell your user to refresh like they're stuck with that binary <laughs> until you ship an update um, so kind of like like putting things in place such that the user can get back into a good state if they ever fall into a bad state when you're writing your app um, so kind of like thinking thinking with that like mentality in mind that you are shipping a binary to a customer and like kind of like coding in that manner such that like you're you're you're, practice, you're making good practices such that you don't you don't fall into like crazy bugs that you can't fix. I like that defensive programming. Yeah. All right. So before we end, one piece of advice for people learning Swift. Go. Hmm. Okay. Let me think about this one. Um, <laughs> I'd say like um. It kind of just like embrace Swift. Like it's it's a it's a great it's a great time to be a Swift developer. Like the fact that it's open source and that they have a very like clear like evolution process for the language. Like um, nothing is really set in stone just yet with regards to like best practices. So it's like you know if you like if you're learning something new in Swift, like definitely share it um, because that helps you learn and also helps like inform like build the community around Swift. Um, and if you see something that like you're not really familiar with in the standard library or like in some code that you found online, like really dive deep and kind of learn like you know what's exactly going on there. Um, so for example, like if you see something in the standard library that you don't necessarily understand, like, you know, reach out to the compiler team and say like, you know, hey, like, you know, what exactly is going on here? Can you explain this or try to dive deeper and see, you know, what's going on under the hood? Um, because really the value of like learning iOS and, and Swift is like really diving deep and, you know, seeing how things are implemented. It's like how and how we talked about earlier when you use a library, like that's great, but also like kind of see how they're, how they're actually implementing it, implementing it and that'll, that'll, that's where the value is. Nice. Have you actually started doing that? Uh, I remember when we first talked, I asked, um, you know, what is the implementation detail of, of I think it was maybe a dictionary or an array. And I, I think I asked, I don't know if it was you or maybe Greg Heo, like mm -hmm. how do you find this, like how do you go on GitHub and find the Swift Standard Library? I think I eventually found it. But have yeah. you started actually getting into the weeds uh, in, in all that? Um, for standard library, not so much, but uh, definitely like during my time at Recurse Center, like I would basically take like popular libraries and projects on GitHub and just kind of like look at under the, like at their source code and see how they're architected. And um, that was a great way to learn because um, like in addition to writing code to learn, it's also very important to like read code as well, <laughs> um, which is kind of interesting. Like I would basically find like big, large open source iOS apps and kind of like read the read through the repository and see you know how they're architected, how they separated concerns, and um, you can definitely learn a ton through that. Um, so yeah, I want to do nice. that more so with the standard library, but it's also like a very great way to learn Swift and iOS also to read the re repositories as well. So kind of like find programmers you really admire on GitHub and like read through their code and uh, see what patterns they use and what style they use. That's a great idea. I think I'm going to do that with, for instance, like the artsy app. Yeah, that's they're, totally they're very great in that regard. Yep, for sure. That's, that's a great one as well. All right. Well, uh, just Dave, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, sharing your story with us, telling us all about your experience with Swift. And I don't know, thank you. Yeah, just thank you so much. Keep doing what you're doing with public extension. Keep doing what you're doing in the general, um, you know, iOS developer community. And I really look forward to coming uh, to New York one day and maybe actually having a, uh, a pizza with you. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, let, let, let me know if you're over here. And uh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And that's the show, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you enjoyed listening to the Swift Coders podcast. Feel free to share the show with a friend, 
leave a review on iTunes, or recommend us on Overcast. If you have any questions, comments, or just want to say hi, contact me on Twitter. Until next time, go swiftly, my friends. Oh,